Well, every few years now in our culture, we come to expect a big-name magician to pull off some new big stunt. From David Copperfield making the Statue of Liberty to disappear to David Blaine being buried alive, we expect these impossible stunts every few years. And, and we see things that aren't supposed to be possible. And they're not possible. They're illusions. But they make for good TV. And this happened a few years ago again where... This time, a a British magician named Dynamo walked on water. His big stunt in Britain was to walk on water. The crowds were lined up on Westminster Bridge, and he stepped out from the shore onto the Thames River, and he started walking across it. And there's, there's no cranes, there's nothing around. It was all filmed up for his TV special, and it looks like he's just walking on water. Crowds are amazed. He reached the middle of the river, And a boat came by, picked him up, and took him to shore. And everyone was amazed. Sounds pretty amazing. Walked on water. Do you believe it? Do you believe he really walked on water? I hope you don't, because we know that such things aren't possible. The only way such an illusion could be pulled off is with the the aid of a slightly submerged, they're called plexiglass pontoons, and it's been done before. This, however, would require the permission of the Port of London Authority, who would then have to warn shipping that part of the river was unusable for a little time. And what do you know, some people did a little investigation, and they found out on that day there was a notice to marine vessels during the stunt which warned of a temporary underwater obstruction just next to the Westminster Bridge. So they found them out. It's a clever trick, an amusing trick, but just a trick nonetheless. But it makes us wonder, well, what about Jesus? Because everyone knows, even non-Christians, everyone knows that Jesus was reportedly to have walked on water. Do you believe that? It sure sounds impossible. It goes against everything else we know. We haven't seen anyone really do it. And so for these reasons, many liberal skeptics who disbelieve all things supernatural often claim Jesus was just a magician like the first ancient magician, an illusionist. He used sleight of hands and tricks and hypnotism to make people see what he wanted them to see. And they argue that since it's impossible for humans to walk on water, Jesus could not have walked on water, and it's irrational to believe that he did. But wait just a second, because if Jesus truly was who he claimed to be, which was not merely human, but God incarnate, then it's not irrational to believe that he walked on water because for God, such a feat seems rather mundane. To God, that's not a big deal. The laws of nature do not bind him. And that's really the issue with all of the miracles we see in the Bible. It's not whether or not they're possible. For Christ, the issue really is, was he who he claimed to be or not? That's the real issue. Was he truly the Son of God? Because then all things are possible. Or was it all just a hoax? We believe that he truly was the Son of God. Why is that? Well, for one, God has opened our eyes, apart from which no one can come to the knowledge of the Lord. But still, we want to say that our belief in Christ is not a leap into the dark. We don't believe in a blind faith. We're not believing against all evidence. We don't believe because of the evidence, but we will say that this belief is supported by a mountain of evidence that back up Christ's claim to be the Son of God. And we can spend a long time going through that, but I bring this up because I want you to consider just 
briefly one piece of that puzzle, one big piece of that puzzle. I want you to consider the apostles. You know the twelve. Everyone knows the twelve. Twelve disciples, the twelve apostles. Obviously, we don't really count Judas, but you know what I'm talking about. Jesus never wrote anything down. Never. He didn't write anything down. They did. They're the ones who pass along the testimony of his life. And together they, they give us the most or the best attested to event of ancient history. But what do we make of their testimony? Because we're reading the testimony of the apostles. What do we make of it? Were they telling the truth? Or was this just a hoax put on by them? Now that might be believable. Uh, it's just a hoax. If they had something to gain. But do you ever think about that? That's kind of the kicker. What did these men have to gain if this were all just a hoax? It's not like the guys you see on TV today who are living easy, getting rich by preaching Jesus. Back then, representing Christ came with extreme cost. If you were an early Christian, it meant you were betraying your family, betraying your society, betraying your nation, betraying your religion, Judaism. And they were heavily persecuted for it. They were ridiculed. They were scorned. They were mocked. They were excommunicated. They were beaten. They were imprisoned. And they even died for claiming and proclaiming that Jesus was the Son of God. And it's not like they were getting rich. There's no money in this venture. They were all impoverished. It's not like they were powerful. Christianity didn't rise to power until the 4th century. But these apostles, they were weak. They were powerless. The, The Romans were in power. All of their lives were wasted for the cause of proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God. And and what did they get out of it? Nothing but death. Seriously, ten of the eleven original disciples, we don't count Judas, died a martyr's death for their belief in Jesus. Did you know that? I'll read you the list. It comes from the early church. Simon Peter, crucified upside down. James, half-brother of Jesus, stoned and clubbed to death. Andrew, crucified. Matthew, killed by the sword. James, son of Alphaeus, crucified. Philip, crucified. Simon, crucified. Thaddeus, impaled by arrows. Thomas, killed by a spear thrust. Bartholomew, crucified. James, son of Zebedee, killed by the sword. If this were just some hoax put on by these 12 men, when their lives were on the line, at least one of them would have cracked, would have given it up, just to save his own skin. Like, no, we're just, uh, there's just a joke here. It's just a hoax. But none of them did. And not only did they have nothing to gain by preaching Christ, they all lost their lives for it. And then thousands of other people shared their conviction and their belief, and they too lost their lives for it. So how do you explain that? You have to explain that away as well. And also, how do you explain another apostle named Paul. Not of the original 12, but he was apostle nonetheless. And the apostle Paul is unexplainable to the world because you remember, he started off not as Paul, but as Saul. He was this super religious Jew who hated Jesus. He hated Christians. He made it his life's passion to have them beaten, imprisoned, and then eventually killed. That was his goal in life, to kill Christians. But then, one day, he was radically changed, overnight, supernaturally, and Christianity's greatest enemy became Christianity's greatest advocate. 
And it's not just from the Bible we learn this. It's super well attested to from ancient history. And it would be like if Osama bin Laden converted to Christianity and became like Billy Graham. She's like, how do you explain that? Whatever happened to Paul was strong enough to change him completely. And he, too, took his newfound belief in Jesus to the grave. And whether or not you believe, I'll tell you one thing, that the apostles believed. They weren't making this up. Something they saw changed them. Something they encountered or experienced changed them and convinced them that Jesus really is the Son of God. And we ask, well, what was it? What was so huge that changed them and convinced them that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God? Was it his teaching? Well, yeah, of course, Christ's teaching had a massive role to play. But more specifically, it was this. It was the signs that Jesus performed. Jesus purposely gave signs attesting to the fact that he was God incarnate. He put his divine nature on display through his divine works, and he did it to authenticate himself as the Son of God. Because after all, you see some guy shows up, he looks like a man, but he's claiming to be God in the flesh. Why should you believe him? And what proof does he offer? You, you shouldn't just believe him. But even Jesus, coming from his own mouth, he told people to believe him because of the works he performs, because of the signs he gives. That's his proof. He's offering the proof to the world. They should know that he's not just a man, and he shows them by doing what no man can do. He does that which is impossible, and it's not just trickery. Thousands witnessed him. Thousands were touched by him. Because of Jesus, the blind receive sight, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, even the dead are raised. Storms are stilled, bread is multiplied, and even water is walked on. All of these are divine works, and they point to Jesus as the divine man. I want you to listen to this. You don't have to turn there, but John chapter 10 records a conversation between Jesus and the Jews, Pharisees. And they ask him this, John chapter 10, verse 24. The Jews gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. They just want to know, like, hey, just, just tell us. Are you the Messiah? Just, just tell us straight up. And Jesus answered them, I, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. Jesus, his response was, I already have told you plainly. Don't you see all the works that I do? They're telling you exactly who I am. They're telling you I am the Messiah, but more than that, that I'm also the Son of God. Listen to Christ. He continues. He says this, verse 30. He goes on to say, I and the Father are one. That's a pretty radical statement. And you can tell because what happens next, verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. 
You see, they understood, even they understood that Jesus was at least claiming to be God. And Jesus goes on to respond, if, if he does the works of God, what's the big deal? Because it's not blasphemy if it's true. He's not blaspheming if he really is God in the flesh. And his works, that's the testimony. There's the, the proof positive of backing up his claims. He says in verse 37, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. If I don't do the works, don't believe me. But, verse 38, if I do them, though you do not believe me, he says, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. There's his, his proof. It's from Christ himself. He's like, hey, you don't, you don't have to take my word for it. Believe because of the works. These are the signs. This is the testimony that he is who he says he is, backing up his claims. There's another passage later in John. That was John chapter 10. Later in chapter 14, Christ is talking with his disciples now, the, the 12. He's having an interchange with them. And Philip says this, John 14, verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. He's like, just, just show us God. They were starting to understand his claims and like, just, just kind of prove it. Overwhelm us. Just show us God the Father We'll be, we'll be done. We'll be sold out. We'll totally believe. Just show us the Father. Jesus said to them, verse 9, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Now that's pretty crazy when you think about it. He's saying, look, You've seen me. You've seen the Father. So when you ask, show us God the Father, you're looking at the same God. It's a remarkable claim. And notice what he says after that in verse 10 of John 14. He says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. He says, verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Once again, he says, hey, you should take my word for it. I am in the Father. The Father is in me, like he just said. I and the Father am one. But if that doesn't work for you, well, otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. The twelve knew, you've seen what I've done. You've seen these works, these signs. And they are telling you just one thing. That I and the Father are one. So I hope you can see, there's a special role that the works of Jesus, the works that Jesus do uh, does play. They're not just simple works. He's not just passing time. These are signs. They're a witness testifying that he is the Son of God. And the greatest of them all, what was his greatest sign, his greatest work, what was it? His resurrection, his own resurrection. And when Jesus rose from the dead and his disciples witnessed that one, it was over. That's it. There's, there's that proof positive they were looking for. That's, that's the top of the top. There is no greater work or sign that he could perform. There is nothing more impossible than that, and yet here it is. 
discussion was over. The disciples were finally convinced, and at the same time, God opened their minds to fully know and see Christ for who he really was after the resurrection. At that point, they looked back on their time with Jesus. They reflected on their years together, and it all became clear. And they realized, hey, you know what? Jesus was telling us this all along. The signs were there all along, loud and clear. We didn't have eyes to see at the time. Their hearts were hardened at the time. But the signs were there. So after that, these apostles, they commit to write down what they know, what they've seen, their testimony. And again, that's what we're reading, the testimony of the apostles. And what are they telling us? They're telling, about, telling us about his life. But they don't care about his childhood. They're telling us about his ministry, culminating in his resurrection. But all the way, they're giving us a lot of his signs. They're recording for us a lot of the same works and signs. Why? So that we too might come to believe in him for who he really is. And John, one of the twelve in his gospel, he tells us this very plainly. At the end, he tells us, John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, he's telling us why he's writing. He says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Like uh, He's included seven or eight major signs. Like There's a lot more. But then he says, verse 31, But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Very clear. I'm writing telling you about these signs, the teaching of Jesus and these signs so that you may believe that he's the Christ and the Son of God. And by believing, you have life in his name. Now, this has all been a, a very long introduction to our text for this morning, which is not found in John. It's found in Mark chapter 6. You can open there now if you want. Because Mark... He's doing the same thing. He's, he's writing with the same purpose as John. They all are. He is recording the works and the signs of Jesus. And these likewise testify that he's the Christ and he's the Son of God. And here in Mark 6, we are entering the final year of Christ's ministry. And we're going to see the signs. They're going to ramp up. They're going to start ramping up. And what we see today was a very special sign. And it was given only to the twelve. Only them. And it blew them away. The sign at first terrified them. And it gripped them with fear. But after the dust settled, this sign tangibly advanced their understanding of who Jesus really was. And they understood more and more, not just a man. They didn't have it all figured out until after the resurrection. But here, this was a big deal in pushing their understanding of Christ forward as we come to see the sign of Jesus walking on water. This one really was a game changer. Like I said, he's entering his final year of ministry. One Passover away, he'll be in Jerusalem and he will die. But for now, he's still in Galilee. And he's at the height of popularity. 
He just fed the 5,000. He's healing people. Everyone still loves him. That's not going to last that much longer. His popularity is steadily going to decline as people realize he's not the political ruler they, they wanted him to be. Eventually, these same crowds will turn away from him. They will give up on him. And likewise, Jesus will turn away from them. Even pronounce a railing judgment against Galilee, this whole region, for their unbelief. Because so many of his miracles, these amazing signs, it occurred right under their noses. They saw them. But they still didn't believe. And the crowds abandoned him. Everyone left. Everyone. They just abandoned Jesus. Except a few. A few people stayed by his side. Who were they? Well, there was the twelve. The twelve didn't leave. The crowds walked away, but they stayed by his side. And that's why in the final year, we see Jesus spend a lot less time with the crowds and a lot more time with his twelve, instructing them because he knows they're the real deal. They're the ones who are going to pass along his message and his signs to the world after he's gone. But again, speaking of these twelve, you have to understand that at first, they weren't terribly different from the crowds. They weren't that different. They were pretty fickle themselves. Last week, we learned that after the feeding of the 5,000, remember Christ miraculously fed the 5,000, and after that event, the people, the crowds, they were so worked up into a frenzy, they wanted to come and take Jesus by force and make him their king. They were looking for a political ruler or someone who would overthrow Roman oppression and lead Israel to world dominance. And realize his disciples, they wanted that too. They wanted Jesus to be king. Just as much as the crowds. They, they had the same expectation for an earthly kingdom right here, right now. They wanted Jesus to rule, literally, right then. It's so much so that they want to be on his right and his left when he does so. Like, hey, Jesus, we want you to rule right now, and I want to be on your right, I want to be on your left when that happens. But over time, Jesus let them know, let them all know, that he is that king, and he is going to rule the nations, but not yet. Because first, he has to die. First, he has to be the suffering servant. And when the crowds caught on that he wasn't going to be the political ruler they wanted him to be, They're out of there. They have nothing more to do with Jesus. But the twelve stay by, and why? They had that same hope for that earthly kingdom and overthrowing Rome. So why didn't they leave too? They were just as disappointed when he told them, like, it's not going to happen right now. Well, one of the major reasons was the signs. More than the crowds, they got a glimpse of the signs of Jesus. And more than the crowds... They were really convinced of who Jesus really was. Again, granted, they didn't have a a perfect, full understanding until after the resurrection, but nonetheless, they were starting to accept the fact that Jesus was not yet bringing an earthly kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. And that not yet was he going to rule on earth, but in heaven. That he was not yet going to rule, but to die And that he was not just a man, but something more. And more and more they grasp that he is the Christ. And more and more they actually start to grasp that he is the Son of God. And it was the signs that they witnessed 
that attested to this truth, gave them confidence of that otherwise crazy belief that here is God in the flesh. And what we have today, again, this sign, this was a sign, walking on water. This one really shook them up. It jolted them. It it was so different, so unique, so unexpected. But it was also such a display of divine power. It, It really took them back. And then it took forward their understanding of who Jesus was. And I think we can identify this moment right here. It's on the turn into his third year of ministry. This, this moment, which was just for them, as being one of the major reasons that they don't walk away. Because not long after this, the crowds walk away, but the twelve don't. And I think this, this sign in particular has a little something to do with that. They saw an amazing sign, and they were given eyes to see the Savior behind the sign. Again, that's all a special introduction to our text. I think that's enough for now. I want us to get into the end of Mark chapter 6 here. We're going to finish the chapter. And it's time we just see for ourselves what, what's going on. What is so special about this sign that, that impacted them so much? How can we see the same thing? So we're going to read through. We're going to read as we go. But pick, along, pick it up along with me at Mark chapter 6, verse 45. I want to see what's going on here. Mark chapter 6, let's start at verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the crowd away. We learn that this takes place right after the feeding of the 5,000, which, remember, when you add women and children, it's more like the feeding of the 15,000. There's a ton of people there. But they're in the wilderness, it's getting late, starting to get dark. People needed time to get home, so it's time to send the crowd away. He fed them. He multiplied the bread, the fish. They're all, they all have a full stomach now, and it's time for them to go home. But there's another reason, actually, that Jesus wants the crowds to go away. We learned last time from John chapter 6, verse 14, the parallel, that the people recognized this was an amazing miracle. They knew he was multiplying the bread, the fish, They were whipped up into such a frenzy over this sign that they wanted to, right then, take Jesus by force and make him their king. They said all the marks of a grassroots insurrection movement against Rome, and that's what the crowd wanted. They wanted to right then, right there, go march and take down Herod and and take over. But that's not what Jesus wanted. That's not his plan. He's not going to be the petty ruler they want him to be. So before things get out of hand, he disperses the crowd. That's why he wants them to go away. It's getting it's starting to get out of hand, and that's not that's not his plan. So he moves them along. But it's kind of strange that we wonder, okay, but why do you want the twelve to go? Because he also he's shooing the twelve away. He's like, get in the boat, go away. And the picture is that he's forcing them to go. It's like he's pushing them in the boat. He's like, go to Bethsaida. It's on the other side, several miles away. And the implication is that they don't necessarily want to leave, but he's making them leave. They just want to spend the night there. Their stomachs are full. Why was he so ready to get rid of the twelve? Well, partly because he knew that they too were just as liable to get caught up in this frenzy to make him king. They would go along with that. Also, partly because he wanted to spend some alone time with his heavenly father. And partly because he knew 
what he was about to do when they were out on the lake. But speaking of that alone time, let's look at verse 46. He puts them on the boat, sends them away. After bidding them farewell, verse 46, he left for the mountain to pray. The crowds are gone. The disciples are gone. He goes further up the mountain, spends that time with his heavenly Father, praying, praying for his mission, praying for the road ahead, praying for his disciples. Because in time, they were going to be in peril and he was going to come to their aid. And let's, let's see this now as we keep reading verse 47. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the land. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and he intended to pass them by. We'll stop there for a second. We learned from John's Gospel that at this point the disciples were several miles out to sea on the Sea of Galilee. It's in the middle of the night. Christ was up on the mountain. He's been praying. He's looking down over them with a bird's eye view. Passover was near, which means it's a full moon. So there's enough light for him to see them out in the the lake. He can tell they're struggling. They're battling the sea. And we learned several weeks ago when the account when Jesus stilled the storm on the Sea of Galilee, that the lake is known for extreme windstorms. Remember that? The Sea of Galilee, it's at 700 feet below sea level. It's the lowest lake in the world. It's surrounded by steep river, uh, steep valleys and, and gorges. and it's surrounded by steep hills as well. Just 30 miles to the north, there's Mount Hermon. It rises to 9,200 feet. So that's a massive elevation change in a short distance. And what happens is that Cold air funnels down from the, from the mountain through the valleys, picks up speed, and then it rushes down and smashes into the hot air rising from the lake. And it creates just an explosion of turbulence and wind, results in massive waves churning the water. Still happens today, and when it strikes, it's no wonder the disciples were straining at the oars. This word for straining, it's used of torture. It's like they were tortured, just being tortured, trying to row the boat in pain, torment. It's like you're out hiking in the wilderness and you get a huge blister on your foot. And with every step, it's, just, it's, it's like it's on fire. It's painful. It stings. There's nothing really you can do about it. you got to get home. You just have to put up with the torture. Every step is like torture until you get home. And that's like what they were up against. The fierce winds were against them. The sails were down. The oars were out. They were rowing. They were battling. They couldn't stop because otherwise they'd get blown out to sea to the southern shore and be a massive detour, dangerous. Instead, they had to fight just to stay on course. I'm sure their muscles were on fire. It was burning. I'm sure their hands were blistering. At the same time, the icy water was splashing them. It was freezing them to their core. It just sounds miserable. And it's in the middle of the night. This fight lasted all night long. We know that they left somewhere between 6 and 9 p.m. And we find them battling in the fourth watch, which is somewhere between 3 to 6 a.m. So 6, 7, 8, 9 hours, they were battling this storm on the lake, just trying to get to the other side. And I wonder if some of them may have been grumbling under their breath against Jesus. Because this is his fault. He made them. Get on the boat. 
They didn't have to. They could have waited till morning. They could have had a nice night. But it's his fault. He told them to go. And so now they have to suffer in these conditions all night long. They're being tormented. They could have had a nice nice night with a full belly, but, but not anymore. And so maybe they're wondering, does Jesus even care about us? But he does care about them. In fact, at that moment, he was up on the mountain watching them, presumably praying for them. And now it's time for him to come to their rescue. But how? I mean, they're, they're three to four miles out, we learned from John. They're, they're quite a ways. So he, what's he going to do? Well, he's going to walk there. And for Jesus, that's not impossible. And so verse 48 says, he came, it's rather nonchalantly, it says, he came to them walking on the sea. And that phrase can't be taken any other way than the simple truth, he was walking on the water. But that's crazy. That's impossible. Humans are not supposed to be able to walk on water. Some insects can walk on water because their weight is less than the surface tension of the water. But not humans. Definitely not humans. That's not supposed to happen. Yet Jesus easily does what is impossible for humans. And just thinking about this makes our imaginations run. And did he get wet? I want to know, was he getting wet or was he, was he not? Did he have like a scotch guard on at the time? With each wave, did he rise up and go down and rise up and go down? Or was he just walking through the waves? Was he hovering? Was his feet literally gliding on top? Or was he like partially submerged, like a foot down or something? How to work? What did it look like? I don't know. We don't know. But we do know that he was doing what no man can do. And then there's this little interesting phrase at the end of verse 48. It says, he was intending to pass them by. And what does that mean? Does that mean he's wanted to sneak past them? Well, not quite. It means that instead of heading right at them like another ship with a battering ram, he wanted to pass alongside parallel to them, giving them an opportunity to recognize him and invite him in. Because this was another test. Just like the feeding of the 5,000, this was another test for them. What would they make of him? How would they respond to this sign? Would they, knowing his power, have enough faith to recognize him in this very unique manner? And the answer to that question is no. No, they wouldn't. Verse 49. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost. And they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. You have to understand the real terror here. They weren't expecting this. People can't walk on water. And they had never even thought of something like that at that time. So the only explanation they could come up with was, this must be a ghost. And the word in the Greek is uh, phantasma, which is where we get the word phantom from. Their only explanation, this must be some apparition, maybe even a demon coming to sink them. And you have to remember that in the ancient world, the sea was associated with with chaos and death. It was a chaotic, untamed, deadly barrier to man. It was often represented as death itself. It was ruled over by pagan gods. And remember, some of these disciples, they were fishermen, they were sailors by trade. So who knows what kind of dark tales and superstitions they had heard about the lake. But whatever the case, now verse 49, they were literally scared to death 
And the cry in verse 49, it's a blood-curdling scream like you hear from a little girl in an amusement park. Their manliness left them all. There's no macho-ness left in the boat. They're crying like little girls. They became white like ghosts. They cried out in terror. Not a single one of them had any courage. None of them stood up like, guys, get it together. They were all scared. They were all crying out. They were panicking. They were screaming as if this figure was going to sink them and kill them and they had nothing to do. There's nowhere they could run. Like in a horror movie. And I can only imagine Christ's internal response when he saw them crying out like this. Because he wanted them to reach out to him in faith, to accept him, to invite him in and, and, and rejoice. But here they were, terrified, backing away, crying in the fetal position. I can only imagine he lets out a huge sigh. Maybe puts his hand in his face and just says, come on guys, get it together. Who do you think I am? Now, we don't really know, but we do know what he says next. Right after this, it says, but immediately he spoke with them and said to them, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them and the wind stopped and they were utterly astonished. Jesus had to say something quick because they were losing it. So he tells them to take courage. Jesus says that often because the the disciples often have little courage. He says, do not be afraid because obviously they were very afraid. They were shaking in their sandals. But they really had nothing to fear. And when he got in the boat, they realized it was Christ. They were relieved. Their fear kind of went away. They calmed down. And they were relieved. And just kind of it reminds me of a time when I was a kid. And I had this super realistic looking snake. It was a rubber snake, but it looked, it looked really real. It was big. And I remember one time, I coiled it up, and I put it in the fridge. In a pose, like it was ready to strike. Just sitting there. You open the fridge, it's like going to pounce on you. And the next thing I know, I was, I was a little kid. you got to let me go here. The next thing I know, my mom opens the fridge, and this was my plan. And she screams at the top of her lungs. She's scared to death because it looked really real. And of course, that's not possible. That would never happen. But at the time, you're not thinking. It's just pure fear. Now, she quickly realized, okay, it's not real. This is fake. There's nothing to fear. And she was relieved. She became relieved when the fear went away. Her relief quickly turned to anger, which is understandable. Well, for the disciples, they're relieved. Okay, it's not a ghost. Their relief quickly turns to astonishment. They're not angry, but they're amazed. They say, okay, okay, it's not a ghost. It's just Jesus. It's Jesus, guys. Chill out. But then they realize it's Jesus, which means he was just walking on water. And that's almost more terrifying because who does that? You're not supposed to be able to do that. That's not normal. And they were understandably blown away because what they just witnessed getting on the boat was not natural. It was supernatural. There are actually five elements in this little story that indicate clearly the supernatural nature of Jesus. And first, there's the whole walking on water thing. And that's pretty supernatural. They saw him walking on water like it was pavement. Remember, for the Jews, there, there's a lot of rich symbolism here. Because again, to them, the sea represented chaos and death for the Jews, from the chaotic waters of creation to the deadly waters of the flood to the barrier of the Red Sea, 
To the Jews, the sea was a symbol of chaos and death. But God in the Old Testament, he's pictured as one who conquers the sea. He divides the sea. He even walks on the sea and treads upon it in the Old Testament. God is greater than the sea, which means he's greater than chaos and death. And Jesus seems like he's channeling some of that Old Testament imagery here. And we know for sure, though, he is the God of the sea, the God who is greater than death. Another supernatural sign in the text comes from that little phrase in verse 48. It says he, he intended to pass them by. That's a special phrase, special word, actually. The way that word is used in the Greek version of the Old Testament when God is referenced is for a theophany. It's a time when God shows up, when God appears in the Old Testament, like Exodus 33, where God appeared to Moses and God caused his glory to pass him by. Or 1 Kings 19, where God appeared before Elijah and caused his glory to pass him by. Same word, same with Jesus here. We've already talked about the links between Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And for this reason, I think we can classify this miracle especially as it's almost like a, a theophany. It's a type of a epiphany. And by walking on water more so than the other miracles, he was really revealing just a pure divine nature. There's just nothing human about that. He's even It's like he's causing his glory to pass them by on the boat. They can behold God and marvel. A third indicator of the supernatural comes in verse 50. And it's that phrase, it is I. He says, take courage, do not be afraid. And he says to them, it is I. And again, a little Greek research, you know, that's a special word. That's a special phrase, two words. Literally reads ego eimi, which is often translated simply as I am. That's what it means. Just He's saying I am. And do you remember, do you know that significance? That's the same phrase, the same title of self-revelation that God first gave to Moses right before the Exodus. That's the name of God. I am, the special covenant name of God revealed to Moses and used throughout all the Old Testament. And you see this especially in John's Gospel where Jesus purposely several times he connects himself with that name, with that God. He says, I am the I am. That's me. I'm that God. And given the context, it seems like Jesus is doing the same thing here. He's coming to them, not just as a man walking on water, but as the great I am. He's, he's God. And if this scene wasn't supernatural enough for you, fourthly, the instant Jesus gets on the boat, what happens? Did you notice the wind the waves, they stop. Again. He did this before. But this time he doesn't have to command them to stop. They just stop. The disciples no longer have to fight the sea. All is at peace because Jesus has conquered the sea. And he's just showing. He just holds complete power over creation in his hands. Water, he can walk on it, no problem. Wind, waves, you can make them stop. No problem. We could even add a fifth supernatural element to the story. It's not actually found in Mark. It comes from John 6:21, where John adds that right after Jesus got into the boat, he says the entire boat was at the land to which they were going, which means they teleported. They just 
poof, they're, they're there. They're at the shore. It's, it's a total mystery to us. John doesn't tell us anything more than this. But by every indication, it appears that Jesus brought them supernaturally to their destination. There's a few other times where this happens. You know, Philip the evangelist in Acts chapter 8, I believe, he's evangelizing the Ethiopian eunuch, and then poof, he's gone. God takes him away, snatches him away. And it seems like that happened as well. But just putting all this together, this was not a simple rescue at sea. This was not a magic trick. And it wasn't just a miracle either. It, it was, but Christ was doing something no mortal can do. He was channeling Old Testament imagery and he was communicating a message through a sign. And the message was, he's God. He is the great I am. He's the one who sets boundaries for the sea, who rules the sea, who conquers the sea. He rules all creation. There's no limit to his power. See his glory and worship. The disciples, when they first saw him, they didn't get that. They were terrified. And verse 52 explains why they were so afraid. It says, For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. This is explaining why they were so terrified when they saw him. And they shouldn't have been. They should have understood by now that Jesus, he possesses full power over creation. Jesus coming to them walking on water shouldn't have surprised them. Shouldn't have been an occasion for fear, but rejoicing and, and, and wonder, worship. But it says they didn't learn their lesson from the incident of the loaves. Just what we read last week. And you remember what happened. Christ, he took five little dinner rolls and two fish, and he multiplied them into enough food to feed 15,000 plus people. And how did he do it? He just he called into existence, out of nothing, the bread and the fish. And is there anything more divine than that? It's the power of creation, purely divine. And the sign from that miracle is obvious. Same thing. Jesus is the creator. He is God. No man, not even an angel, possesses that power, the power of creation. So look, just to say, you saw someone in front of you, and they, they called into existence from nowhere thousands and thousands of dinner rolls. Would you be that surprised if the person right after that walked on water? I mean, it's amazing, but it's, it's less shocking because you've just saw, you've just seen their incredible power over creation. And that's the point. They should have understood by now who Jesus is and that he holds power over the material universe. But they still didn't make that full connection. Why? Because like the crowds, they did not reflect on the sign He says, for their hearts were hardened. This refers to a dullness of understanding, a spiritual sluggishness. They were just spiritually dull. They weren't getting it. And don't confuse this with the hard-hardness exemplified by Christ's opponents. They likewise drew the wrong conclusion about Jesus, but it was out of hatred and rejection. The disciples, they had faith. And they accepted that Jesus... But they too missed the sign at first because they only had a little faith. At this time, there were men of only a little faith. And so when they they saw Jesus walking on the water, instead of rejoicing and worshiping, 
they resorted to a temporary faithless terror. But things changed when Jesus got in the boat. Everything changed. Like I said, this miracle was especially significant for them. It was like a game changer because after this, we find the first time that we know of a confession from the disciples getting closer and closer to the true identity of Jesus. It's recorded over in Matthew chapter 14, verse 33, which is the parallel. The wind stops. He gets on the boat. Matthew tells us that, remember, Peter goes out and walks on water too, but he sinks because of his little faith. Save that for Matthew. But in verse, four, uh, verse 33, after Jesus gets in the boat, it says, And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. And we know, again, the disciples, they still don't, they don't have it all figured out until after the resurrection. That's a big deal. They're saying he's not just good, not just Messiah, but they're calling him God's son. They're starting to see him more and more than just, not just a man, not just Messiah, but the son of God. And they worship him. And you know what? Jesus accepts their worship. Because it's appropriate. Well, since we're here, we're so close to the end in Mark chapter 6. Let's go ahead and finish out the chapter, read these final verses. These just summarize some more ministry in Galilee, which is going to wind down. But look at Matthew, or Mark 6. Let's finish the chapter starting at verse 53. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. When they had got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and ran about the whole country and began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. Wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak and as many as touched it were being cured. And the chapter ends. So we learn that after this sign, Jesus goes to Gennesaret on the western shore a densely populated area, and he still draws a, cl- a crowd. And you read these closing verses, and how, what do you think about that? People still love him. They still come to him. They're bringing their sick. They're still excited to see Jesus. You might think, this is a good thing. You might think, hey, this is great. People still like Jesus. But you know what? It's really not that good. What you read here in these final verses is actually not that good. Yes, Jesus is still compassionate toward them. He's feeding them like a good shepherd, healing them. But all of these physical blessings he gives, they're not meant to be an end in themselves. He's not just a wonder worker. They're meant to lead the people to Jesus as a source of spiritual healing as well. But that doesn't happen. That never happens. Which is why these verses are actually tragic when you think about it. Because just look, look at the amazing zeal these people have. They're running to Jesus with their sick. They would do anything to be healed. And so would you. So would I. We get that. They have a zeal to see him, to be healed. And you might think that zeal is a good thing. But it's not because that's all they wanted from Jesus. Just heal us physically and we're good to go. That's all they wanted. Their zeal was literally only skin deep. The crowds, they appear 
to be very close to Jesus, but in reality, they're very far away from him. They're very far away. When are they going to realize that their spiritual needs far outweigh their physical needs? When are they going to realize that their separation from God because of their sin, that's their real problem? Okay, yeah, you may have a you know, bad back, but in the grand scheme of things, you're facing judgment because of your sin before God. When are you going to worry about that and focus on that? And then, when would the light bulb click on and they realize, well, hey, Jesus can solve that too? Being the, you know, the Messiah and all. When would they go to him in faith, not for healing physically, but for salvation? And the answer is, never. They wouldn't. These people from Galilee, they, they don't. They never do. And as time goes on in his final year, he continues to heal them and feed them. And when they get their full, or their fill rather, they have no more need of Jesus. And they they just go away. They go back to their lives. They've been healed up, fixed up. He pretty much banished sickness from Galilee in that year. And they're done. They saw the signs, these cities of Galilee, more than anyone else. But they read them wrong. Or they didn't care. Their hearts were hardened. And they missed Jesus. And as a result, just listen to this. Again, you don't have to turn, but just listen. After all this takes place, Near the end, Christ speaks a stunning judgment specifically on these cities of Galilee. All this, where all this was taking place. Listen to what he says about them. These are all Galilean towns. He says, Matthew 11, verses 21 through 24. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin, one of the cities. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented a long time ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. He says, and you, Capernaum. Remember that was like his new hometown? He says, will not, he says you will not be exalted to heaven. Will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. You get that? Capernaum was his new hometown. He had done so many miracles there. And they saw it all. But they never came to him spiritually for who he was your salvation, confessing him. And you know what? They are so much more accountable than the, the most wicked people on earth in Sodom and Gomorrah. And they will receive a stricter judgment. And I, I trust you can tell the lesson now for you. Similar to last week with the feeding of the 5,000, don't miss the sign. You've seen the sign. Don't miss it. Don't read the sign wrong. Realize from it, Jesus is the Son of God. God in the flesh. It's one of the major messages of the Gospels. And you all are just as accountable. You might think you're off the hook because it's not like you really saw with your own eyes Jesus walk on water. It's not like you saw it. So it's not the same thing. But you know what? You are more 
on the hook than even they were. Because you have seen and have in your hands the privilege of God's complete testimony to the world. This is everything <clears throat> This is everything God has to say to you. So this is a message, and you have it all complete in your hands. You probably have several copies of it, and you know it. You've seen it. You've seen the signs. You see Jesus on display as the Son of God. You've heard the preaching week in, week out. So you're on the hook. That doesn't have to be a bad thing, though. How do you respond? That's the question. If you, too, continually turn away and harden your heart against Him, His judgment awaits you as well. And it will be worse than Capernaum. But if you confess Him as God's Son and render Him the worship that He is due with your lips and with your lives, then you'll live. You'll receive this overwhelming grace and mercy and favor and share in glory. You have life to the fullest. It's an amazing gift given for those who come to Him, humble, repentant, as Lord and Savior. And really, just, just know, there's no greater peace and comfort in life than by knowing Jesus, giving Him your life. It's, it's the smartest thing to do. You know, the passage we had today, that the walking on water, it provides such a wonderful picture for how Christ cares for the church. And the early church, Several years after Christ died and rose, they were so heavily persecuted, they were suffering, they were dying. They latched on to this passage more than almost any other as a source of hope and encouragement because they saw in it a picture of the church. The disciples in the boat, at sea, tossed by the waves, terrified, fearful, suffering. That's like the church, they said. It's like a picture of the church. That's why, by the way, you look at a art from the early church, and the church is often symbolized by a little boat. It comes from this passage. And they, they go like this, the parallel forms. Christians in the church, especially back then, lived in tumultuous times, storm-tossed lives, afflicted, suffering. That's still true today. And you might ask, well, where, where's God? In the midst of the church's suffering, especially back then, Christians dying left and right, where is God? Doesn't he know we're out here in the storm suffering? And yeah, of course God knows. God is the one who sent you out on the lake. He knows where you are. He, he put you there. God is sovereignly in control of all of your circumstances. But then you also ask, well then, does he care? Does he care that we're suffering so much and we're, we're fighting here in the lake? Has he forgotten you? And no, he hasn't forgotten you. He's up on the mountain. He's watching you right now. He's praying for you. And you know, Jesus, he still, right now, intercedes on behalf of all the saints. That's still true. And when night is darkest and you're at your weakest, he comes to you. He's there, even in the midst of the storm, to rescue you, to help you in your difficulty. And he brings you peace and comfort. And there is your great relief. And of course, that's not the point of the passage. We know the point is to tell us that Jesus is the Son of God. But you get the picture. It's a great picture that the early church used. And by no means does following Christ mean you will have smooth sailing all life long. You won't have smooth sailing by following Christ. But it does mean that in the midst of the storms of life, you have the Good Shepherd 
you have the great I am in the boat with you. And that's your comfort and relief in life in the midst of the storms. That He will always be with you. Good times, bad times, He's your Lord and Savior until the end if you confess Him. That's our treasure, that's our hope, and I hope it is yours as well. That you, too, turn to Him, confess Him, render Him the worship He is due as the Christ and the Son of God. And you read the signs rightly and you live and enjoy the Master. Let's pray. Great God and Savior, we do confess that you are the great God and Savior, and that Lord Jesus Christ, you are the Messiah, the Savior who sent to the world to die, to pay for sin, to rise again. And that you also are the Son of God, God in the flesh, the only one who could do such a work of paying for sin. Lord Jesus, you had to come as a man to be a substitute for men, for women, for humans. You had to be made in the likeness of Adam. At the same time, you had to come as God because no human, no angel could pay the sin for all of us. There was an infinite debt to be paid. Only God himself could pay that on a cross. And you did. You did both, being God, being man. We recognize that. We confess that. We believe that. And we submit to that. We worship you for who you are, worthy of all praise and adoration, both for your nature and your works. And we see the signs, Lord. They're loud and clear, and we, we get them, and we believe. I pray for anyone here who may not believe that you convict their hearts. Their hearts have been hardened, that you penetrate even the hardest of hearts. You humble them, and you show them the greatness of the Lord and Savior. There is only one. There is no other explanation They humble themselves before him, cry out to him for forgiveness. He will always forgive. And that they live. They find life in Christ. There is no better life than following him. It's so true. It doesn't mean there's smooth sailing. We may suffer even more than the world, but we have the joy and the comfort of God in the boat with us. And we rejoice in that. So even as we leave here, Lord, we are thankful that you are always with us, our great shepherd, until the end. We look forward to seeing you again. In your return. In your name of Christ we pray. Amen.